Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, COVID, well-being, emergency management, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find and I do respond to everything I get. Now, today's show, we've got a variety of topics to talk about today, and I want to welcome to the show Mr. Robert Hall. Robert, welcome to the show. Alex, thank you very much, and welcome to you too and your audience. And uh, I reached out to Robert because I came across Robert on LinkedIn with uh, one of the postings, uh, an email notice, and I thought, oh, that's an interesting topic. Reached out to Robert, and uh luckily <laughs> and happily he agreed to be on the show and uh, we've got a few things to touch base on now robert i know you and i have touched base a few times uh via email and uh, uh not necessarily face to face screen to screen shall we say and uh, so i know a little bit about you but for our global listeners and viewers could you take a minute or two and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself what you do and yes. how you got into what we do of course how to condense your life in a minute <laughs> um, I, I, I spent half my working life uh, in the military, uh, in the British Army, and probably tell from my accent, I'm a Brit. Um, I also work for the government uh, in part of their uh, National Crime Agency, um, which is equivalent to the FBI. Um, but then I transferred out into business and I worked for a variety of organisations, Barclays, British American Tobacco. Um, G4S, uh, but all in resilience uh, and risk management. And that's really where my interest stemmed from and my expertise has grown out of. Um, my last post was as executive director of an organization called Resilience First, uh, which I set up with a colleague. Uh, and it's really designed to help business understand what resilience is about and how they, as a business community, uh, can promote it. Um, I left uh, at the beginning of last year. So I'm technically now retired, uh, but I spent a lot of my time writing about resilience and uh, authoring a book which is about to come out uh, and a series of articles which I like to finally pick up on. So how about that? Well, first of all, happy retirement. Thank you. And second of all, uh, congratulations on the book. And we're going to be talking about that in, uh, I think, our third segment. So we'll, I hope everybody listens and uh, gets a little peek on uh, what might be in there. So I've, our first segment, I've got some questions for you. And my first one is, what is your understanding of resilience for companies and communities? Yeah, well, resilience is a an interesting word, which is very popular. It's, you type it into Google, you'll come up with millions of entries. Uh, and it's a bit like strategy or crisis, what, what do you actually mean by strategy? Um, so my understanding of it, and it's it's been shaped over, over time, is really an ability to survive and thrive, I suppose, in a very short. By that, I mean uh, ability to overcome a shock, stress, uh, and bounce forward. Right? I use the word forward rather than bounce back. Because I think resilience is about adapting to change that that has brought about and cause you to learn uh, and change the way you face further shocks and stresses. Uh, so it's about building back better, not just building back, but building back better. And if you are truly resilient, then you learn from those experiences and are better capable of meeting those future challenges in, in a more experienced and knowledge way. So I think it's uh, 
it's an important word to try and get round. There isn't a precise definition. Or if you interviewed people on the street, they'd give you as many variations of resilience as there are people. But I think it conveys an interesting and increasingly popular concept of not just business continuity, but actually building back and being able to cope more successfully in the future. Yeah, I, I think you know, if you do go through an adverse situation, whatever it may be as a person or an organization, if you are building back, when you declare that situation over, quote unquote, you should be better positioned than where you were when it started. Yeah. So going back means, you, to me, you didn't learn anything. And nothing That's absolutely. Yep. No, you've got it absolutely right there, Alex. Um, and the, the other thing I would say about it is it, it, it is really a, a journey, not a destination. There isn't a fixed endpoint for this because you will never be fully resilient um, because you're always learning and you're always meeting new challenges, new shocks and things. Uh, and therefore, you go on becoming hopefully more resilient uh, over time. Um, and there is no one solution. Again, it doesn't help with solution. Um, but everybody's got their own goals and uh, objectives. And, you know, one person isn't resilient uh, and another person is because there are varying degrees of resilience. You can be resilient to particular not resilient to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, it's a very fluid concept, which uh, but I think it's important to realize that we go on being resilient over time. Yeah, I, I think it's like trying to nail pasta to the wall. You know, it's not, yes. it's not going to work. You know, it, trying yeah. to pigeonhole one definition for resilience when everybody, every organization, and every community all experiences something different. Yeah. Even if they're experiencing the same basic scenario how things are set up, the makeup of the community, how it's laid out, how the organization, the nature of its business is all going to have a different experience. So how can you all pigeonhole it and say, well, this is what it means? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I do use some examples of being resilient. Uh, it, you know, a Syrian in a refugee camp um, has a totally different concept of resilience and an ability to be resilient than someone living in rural Suffolk. Or, mm-hmm. or you know, out of out of Toronto, um, we all have different environments to cope with, and we can be good or bad uh, according to our own uh, backgrounds, really. And that brings in another interesting concept: is it nurture uh, or is it nature? Um, and I think there's a mixture of both in being being resilient. Well, my next question, because you kind of uh, hinted at this a little bit in your response there. Uh, in the light of uh, the pandemic and the Ukrainian war uh, right now, how has our approach to resilience changed? Well, I think it's changed significantly, really, um, besides raising the awareness. of, And you can't put a paper these days without that word popping up. But I think those two um, serious systemic crises, the pandemic and the Ukrainian war, have really highlighted to many people how, just how volatile uh, and unpredictable um, the, the world has become. Uh, no one thought we would see a European war uh, on our continent uh, after the Second World War, um, but we have one. Um, and a lot of people were predicting a pandemic, but, but people generally put it out of their mind. Uh, it really did shock us in terms of the of it, global systemic um, so I think the first thing I would point out is I think people's awareness of risk um, because of the volatility of the world. I think people now are looking slightly further beyond the normality um, of what is around the horizon, over the horizon, around the corner, um, and being willing to contemplate some fairly serious challenges we have. Um, you know, how effectively they are in coping, measuring, coping, understanding that, I don't know, but I think there's certainly an awareness uh, that we are uh, in a much more unpredictable world. And I think if you want a climax to it, it's climate change. I mean, you know, we are in a very unpredictable state of play and we therefore need to be really into climate. Um, the, the second thing I would 
as I think has been a, a chain, is about the supply chain and the way we have to cope with disruption. And I think both the pandemic and the, the Ukrainian war have shown us that we are no, it's no longer sufficient to be having a system that's just in time. We've been grown up with uh, always in time, you know, stocks are always two days out. Um, whereas now, because things are so disrupted, can be so disrupted, I think people are beginning to realize we need a just-in-case uh, capability um, because we just don't know what to do. Um, and that has a lot of consequences for cost and storage and um, redundancy. But I think it's one of the key messages that business has taken away from those disruptions that we have to have a, a little bit more in our system. Interesting. I like to just just in time to just in case, you know, yeah. because there were there was for quite a few years, and it was really around Y two K, especially right after Y two K. Um, I ran into um, we're not going to worry about what if scenarios anymore because nothing happened at Y two K, so mm -hmm. just focus on the basics: a fire, mm -hmm. a flood. But now, with just in case, we're thinking, yeah, but that fire could be on the other side of the world and still impact us. You know, think of the volcanoes in Iceland and uh, yeah. Yeah. Indonesia or Malaysia, um, mm -hmm. somewhere around there that stopped uh, you know, travel mm -hmm. and and uh, industries and stopped society for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I think this unpredictability is something we just have to. We're not going to be able to change it very much. It's going to probably get worse. So we have to be more resilient. Uh, in dealing with that. Um, but it's also thrown up an interesting uh, concept that one can't easily predict, one can't predict um, what is coming up uh, with many of these large challenges. And hence, if you all go down a, a risk register approach to fetch out every risk you can possibly imagine, you can be better sure that the thing that's going to happen is the one you didn't act for. <laughs> um, and so you end up with either a massive file of potential risk you review every year, um, as businesses do, um, or you look more at the generic consequences of what is going to happen, the, the generic impacts, rather than the specific order. Um because no one would have predicted the Ukrainian war, but you can bet that such events will disrupt your supply chain, will disrupt the way your staff work, uh, whether they can come into the office or not. And hence, um, looking at those generic consequences takes you, takes you away from looking at specific, trying to figure out specific potential risks, which you know, are endless. And many of those consequences are common. So if it's a flood uh, or it's a volcano, you know that your supply chain is likely to be disrupted uh, if you have a, a large supply chain. What are you going to do that would allow you to respond to that without necessarily having boats ready to float in a river or, you know, some gas mask for a volcano? You know, you need the generic responses that will cater for everything and anything yeah. uh, without, you know, again, a massive file of registers. So I think that's been an interesting development uh, with people recognizing that we just can't keep these risk registers building up. They're just getting too big. Yeah, some, some of them have been huge that I've seen. Uh, my next question is, because um, we only have about uh, three minutes left in this segment, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, but how do you think we can go about measuring our resilience in organizations? That's a very good question. Uh, and um, it's made more difficult by our earlier conversation that resilience is a very fluid term. Um, you know, like management, I guess, if you can't measure it, you, you can't manage it. But um, it is very difficult to do. Um, there are no absolutes on this. Um, so if anyone's looking for a nice chart, they can just box off and 
uh, and get an answer, it's not going to happen. But I think we can uh, do a lot to help ourselves, firstly, by disseminating best practice, uh, raising standards, uh, written standards, which, you know, are useful to a degree. Um, they can be a bit of a tick box arrangement, but but nonetheless, uh, standards are there. Um, we can also try and measure uh, our own resilience through self-assessment, I guess, which is very much like marking one's own home homework. But there are categories uh, which you can break resilience down into, um, and you can then try and have a set of measures, um, statements, which you can look at and see how well you are comparing. So, you know, if I was going to break um, resilience down into some key components, I would be using words like people, places, operation, uh, performance, uh, and process. So each of those have a bit more of a handle around um, which you can ask questions to say, you know, are my people uh, prepared for a disruption? Um, is my location uh, suitable for disruption? Um, so you can start measuring it in that way. Um, and people are doing that. Um, we've come up with a Resilience First has come up with a, a process of doing that. Um, but generally, the, the approach has been very much around cities, uh, comparing Toronto with London, Jakarta. Um, and that has some merit to a point, but it because these cities, you know, uh, where you are and where I am out of London, um, are massive. And, you know, there are so many different communities within them that all have different levels of resilience. Mm -hmm. All very well to say, uh, as some have, that you know Toronto is a very resilient city, but I bet you will confirm that parts of Toronto aren't as resilient as you would like them to be. So you do end up with a an indices that is a bit too broad. So you have to take these variants in in, in mind before you say, you know, I am resilient. I've got a score of eighty nine out of a hundred because I think you could unpick that. Mm -hmm. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Robert Hall today. In our next segment, we're going to talk about the UK government's resilience framework. You don't want to miss that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Robert Hall. And for segment two, this is actually the topic why I reached out to Robert. And it has to do with the UK government resilience framework. 
you had written an article and I saw the posting and uh, that's why I reached out to you. So could you tell us what the UK resilience framework is, what it's trying to address? Because as we spoke during the break, what sometimes gets implemented and developed in one part of the world slowly makes its way and has impact in other parts of the world. So I really want people to understand this. Yes, of course, Alex. And I think it's important to, to put it in context because it is a specific UK document and I don't want your audience to miss significance in that regard. Um, well, back in 2021, two years ago, uh, the government in the UK decided to conduct what they called an integrated review, which looked at defence, security and foreign policy across the board and where was the country heading and what needed it to do. In that document, it mentioned that we needed, and it was the first time it stated clearly, that we needed a resilience strategy, uh, which was well received, um, and we have been waiting for two years to see what would emerge. So on the 19th of December of last year, um, a document was published by the government, which took us a little bit by surprise because it was called the United Kingdom Resilience Framework, um, not a strategy, a framework. Now, I don't want to get into semantics, but there actually is quite a significant difference between a framework and a strategy. But anyway, we got a, got a framework in front of us. And the aim of the framework was to really strengthen our resilience uh, in order to, and it's a good definition of resilience, to prevent, to mitigate, to respond and recover from risks in our nation. Now, it's not unique because many other countries, um, New Zealand and Australia, for example, have been down this path uh, before us. So, you know, we're not uh, marching to a new tune here, but it was new for us. Uh, and well, as I say, welcome, because nothing had really been done in this regard before. Um, and it had three key or core principles uh, in the framework. Um, and those were openness, um, prevention uh, and community. And they went out. Timeline was out to 2030. Um, fortunately, it's uh, again Go, picking on the word framework, it really doesn't give firm deliverables. It gives objectives out to 2030, but it doesn't give deliverables. And I suppose as we'll come to looking at the strengths and weaknesses, uh, people are waiting for uh, further outlines as to what will be actually done uh, and who's going to do it. Um, but we'll see. So does that give you a, an introduction and background to what it's about? Mm-hmm. What, what, um, uh, I, I do have a question though. What prompted the idea to even start this? Is that even known? Like, was there a specific event that said, you know what, we need to take a look at this? Well, I think back in 2021, when the integrated review came out, was, um, a sort of periodic review of our foreign and security policy. That's, mm. that's done not annually, but every sort of your time every five years or more and that was that was a time when it was a good opportunity to look at the world uh, and see the threats facing us it's before the ukraine war um but someone had an insight uh and the motive and quite right that we hadn't really as a nation addressed resilience um <clears throat> so i think this document was an opportunity uh, to look at it. it it did sketch out some out some very broad outlines of what a resilient strategy to look like. Uh, so we were all, as I say, surprised that it came out as a framework, not a strategy. So what are some of its strengths then? Regardless yeah. of how it came out, you know, what are some of the strengths, the, the really good points that people, are really, people, communities, organizations are picking up on? Yeah. Well, as I said, it's, it's a good first attempt uh, at more resilience. Um, the strengths really are that it focuses, as one of the core principles says, on prevention. So it shifts the emphasis about from response, recovery and response, immediacy, uh, to looking slightly more forward, looking at prevention and preparation. Um, and this was 
um, something people were long asking for because it takes away the the reactive nature of resilience and places it much more on the active, predictive uh, nature of resilience to look at threats and risks and be more attuned to those. So one of the things it looked at, for example, was saying that we need to move away from looking at one and two year risks we need to look at five-year risks. Well, I would say, and many others would say, well, we really need to look at 10 and 20 and 30-year risks. Um, even if they don't materialize, you need to have that long-range capability. But at least it was a five-year look. So, uh, you know, a tick for attempting to be more preparatory uh, and preventative in its approach. That was, that was one strength. Um, another one that I think was acknowledged was to place more emphasis on standards, which we've looked at in this conversation. Um, but standards both for business and for government, uh, and there might even be a mandatory nature of standards for business, and that's to be explored. Um, but put more of an onus on a wider range of parties who have a best practice and standard against which to measure their resilience and, and apply it. So that was, again, welcome. Um, and the third strength I think I would identify was the greater use of what we term in this country as local resilience forums. There are 42 in, in the UK. These are almost county-bound um, organisations which have a mixture of emergency services, um, utilities in them to help with a disaster uh, in their region um, with some extra money. And that's always welcome. <laughs> now, each, each of those I could unpick, and we have to talk in a minute about weaknesses, but I think it was a good first effort um, to try and bring more cohesiveness uh, to the resilience field. Um, and I think it's been received well in that regard, although, as we'll come on to, I think there are lots of holes in it uh, that need to be addressed. And we'll talk about the weaknesses in just a moment. Um, the The framework itself, who is it? You, you mentioned counties and uh, local county governments. Is that who this is directed towards? Or is it directed towards and should be adopted by every organization, every government agency or department um, like, is it something that everyone has to follow or is there some sort of a uh, guideline saying, you know, companies that are only uh, 250 employees more need to worry about this? You know, who, who's it Who's it really for and yeah. you looking at it? Well, on the surface, it's about everybody. Uh, it, it is not just one sector, mm. but it's not done all the sectors equally or given them the full attention they deserve. Um, for example, you know, local resilience forums there, but they're very limited in their capability. Um, and government is there to back them up. But there hasn't been really the investment into expanding the government capability, the governance capability. Uh, there has been a little, I'm not saying none, but there hasn't been a matching governance capability to oversee this. So when we're talking about a national resilience response, really we would struggle in the UK to mount that. Because although it's talked about all of society resilience response, we still don't have the capability to mount that. Um, and of course you get down to the arguments of, well, who's going to pay for it and how's it going to be paid for and where the people are going to come from. But those are separate issues. Uh, to answer your question, is it directed at everybody? Yes. Is it capable of being applied to everyone? No, is my view. Is is there a time frame around this by any chance? Yes, it's out to 2030. Um, they've identified some objectives that we're wanting to do in 2025, so two years' time. Um, so it's ambitious, um, but... The, we will see whether the you know, proof of the pudding is actually in the delivery. And, and we won't know that unless we have a, another pandemic 
uh, or a, or a war perhaps or a major crisis because it won't be tested in in the way that it it needs to be well now let's ask the, the next question because you talked <laughs> about strengths what are some of its big weaknesses yeah well i perhaps i've hinted already and i don't wish to show my bias but people have said it's a bit underwhelming uh in its uh, approach i mean we, we, after two years we were expecting something much more uh in its, its um in a scale that that really does address the whole of the nation society um so it really hasn't um matched that yet um but give it fairness you know the first stab uh, we'll see where it goes um, but specifically on, on the weaknesses I would identify, which I think your audience might be interested in. Firstly, there's very little mention of adaptation. Now, to me, adaptation is an essential part of resilience. It's how you change your behavior or your attitude uh, in order to be more resilient at time. Uh, it does mention adaptation uh, as, the, as a word, but it really doesn't think what that means for a resilience framework or strategy. And I think that's a shame because we talk so much about climate adaptation um, as a specific threat uh, and a need to adapt what it mitigate. So I would have thought that a framework should address that. So that's one that I don't think has been enough yet. Um, the second point I would make is about community resilience. And the money's to achieve that. Um, we talked about these local resilience forums, uh, which are the sort of community base. But I think if you are going to talk about a whole of society, then you need to go beyond 42 LRFs. And you need to, how do you engage with 67 million people in the UK? You know, in, 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 in extreme, you need to get down to almost households and schools and factories and businesses to engage the whole of society. And there isn't a really a mechanism for doing that. Uh, we have in the UK, I don't know where, how it is in Canada, but we haven't yet got a system for announcing and calling out all doctors in an area um, or bringing together all the factories that can make ventilators. We, we haven't got that as a cohesive concentrated plan so there's a lot to be done i think in bringing the community or communities together um the third one is that i think there's a lack of absence for holistic government we I, and again i don't know how other countries have it but we all work on ministries you know, we've got a ministry of health we've got a ministry of defense we've got a ministry of education now some of these threats pandemic being a good example of all those departments and if you leave resilience to a lead department say the ministry of health or pandemic you know it's, it's sometimes quite difficult then to bring in the, the the forces of the other defense transport whatever uh, in a holistic way other than through you know picking up the telephone and ringing up my colleague in the other ministry. So I think there's a need for, both in this plan and any plan, a way of uniting government departments so that there is a cross-government, high-level engagement, probably with a very senior minister in charge, who has the right to be able to say to the Ministry of Health, or you know, this is what we want and this is how we're going to do it. And we don't have that. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how other countries have that cohesiveness that's really needed for a national plan. It's it, what you were just describing there. Um, it reminds me what happens in organizations where everything gets built in a silo. You know, yes. like there's some sort of an incident. Here's the roles and responsibilities for this group. Here's the roles and responsibilities for that group. But for them to really work effectively, they have to be communicating with each other and they have mm -hmm. to break down those silos. And that yeah. seems to be the same thing that needs to be uh, considered with this framework going forward as well. No, you're absolutely right, uh, Alex. And, but I, I'm not uh, so naive to suggest that um, people like working. We we have a sort of inherent 
defense mechanism and, and security mechanism by saying, you know, I belong to this department and, you know, I'll work for this department. Um, but I think there's there's a need to break down some of the the solidity of those walls to make them more permeable. People don't seem threatened by sort of abolishing departments, but they have an ability to work with others more cohesively if there's a need to, and exercise perhaps in a way that draws that out. Uh, so I think there's um, it's not an easy approach, easy to say, but it's not easy to actually do. But I think we do need to do much more to make those silos less less obvious. Yes. Yeah, we we have to. Uh, well, I'm sure many of us have experienced it. You know, you're trying to work with somebody, but it's they they just aren't responding properly because they're afraid of their own little empire getting yeah. uh, stamped out or you know a finger pointing or something happens. So everybody builds up a wall around themselves. Yeah. You know, and then when something does happen, nobody can see over the wall or get through the wall, and then they can't figure out why things aren't working the way they want them to. But they set themselves up for it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, human behavior, and it's very difficult to change human behavior, to change mm -hmm. attitudes. Uh, yeah. But that is what is needed for a cross-government plan. And you know, the pandemic saw it to a degree. I don't know about your country, but certainly ours, that the people were willing to um, get out of their box and work with others. As soon as the pandemic's over, they've gone back to their own box again. Yeah, <laughs> go back to what so they're familiar we, with. We don't. We don't learn. Yeah. yeah. On that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. Today, we're talking with Robert Hall. And in our third segment, we're going to talk about building resilient futures. We'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Flick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Robert Hall. And as I mentioned at the end of the last segment, we're going to talk about building resilient futures. This just happens to be the title of Robert's book that will be coming out this year. Robert, so my, my first question to you is uh, from your book, because Robert provided me the table of contents, is um, let's talk about urban resilience. Mm. Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's only one part after the book, uh, but clearly an important one. Um, when you realize that sort of 70% of people are expected to live in by 2015, um, it does raise the question of, you know, how are we going to be resilient in how many people are crammed together? Um, and 
what I dis- discover in, in, in when I wrote the book is that there are many solutions out there, and, and I think we're going to draw on a whole range of them rather than one. But certainly the idea of uh, hybrid working, the pandemic has reinforced this, uh, whereby we work in different ways than we have in the past. Uh, some of us work in the office, some don't. Um, because if we get everybody, then when there's a disruption, it's going to be massive disruption. Whereas mm. the pandemic did allow us, and it only on the back of technology, because we couldn't, uh, we w- wouldn't have these Zoom-type meetings. Um, we were able to mix, blend how we worked. Um, and having virtual systems uh, and the technology to back them up, I think is going to be a real boom to give us the flexibility and the connectedness we will need to live in in the cities of the future but i would like to caveat that and it's it's a theme of my my book throughout and it's perhaps my personal um, bias in that i don't think resilience is about system or processes or infrastructure they play an important part but i think resilience is about people and if you can get people to behave in a different way, um, then I think you are more likely to be resilient than not. And I use the example often of London. Um, For those of you who know London, um, it's been around a long while and it's got some pretty ancient infrastructure. Um, If you've been on some of the tube lines, you'll know what I mean. Um, But we tend to think of London being quite resilient because its people are resilient, whether that's you know, absolutely true. I don't know, but improved during the pandemic. So even if you have all the systems in place, if you don't prepare your people, then I don't think you'll be resilient. So it will apply particularly in urban settings. Uh, we somehow have got to bring those people in organisations or communities together uh, to let them be more resilient with whatever infrastructure or technology uh, comes about. Um, and if we had another pandemic without Zoom, um, it'll be an interesting challenge to see how we would overcome that. Um, it would. Um, and the last point I'd make about urban uh, resilience is we can't build ourselves out of the many systemic risks. You know, whether they're climate or flooding or pollution or migration, um, each of these has their our own unique problems. Uh, and I think resilience requires the cross-cutting holistic approach that I mentioned earlier to try and find those solutions that will be suitable across the board. So, you know, whether it's migration or flooding, we both need housing. We need houses to put the migrants in. We need houses to, to live, to let people who've been flooded live in. So rather than f- concentrate specifically on the a risk. Let's see what we can do to make the answer common uh, many different. So, the next section of your book that I wanted to touch on, and you've kind of hinted at it a, a few times here, but um, I want to talk about community resilience. Uh, there's a lot of talk out there right now about organizational resilience and operational yeah. resilience, but specifically community resilience. How do we enhance that for the common good? And what, what does it really entail? Yeah, it's it's a real, real challenge because communities <clears throat> are pretty amorphous. Um, and, you know, you know, the different sorts of communities, uh, levels of resilience. Um, it's how do we enhance the common good? And, and rather than uh, make my comments specific to a community, I think I'll just address communities in general. And I think the first thing one needs to do is understand or help communities understand that we're all in this together with the pandemic. We need we have a set of shared responsibilities and values. Um, and in many ways modern society is shifting away from that. Uh, individualism um, is becoming you know quite embedded. But in order to survive as a society, we do need to somehow bring communities more closely together um, and, and collaborate. Um, and that is, again, easy to say, but not very 
easy to do. It is essential. You need um, a common value, a common purpose. And I think pandemic gave us that. Everybody was hell-bent on surviving and getting over the pandemic, and it brought people together. Unfortunately, the Ukrainian war, because it's for the UK, is distant. Uh, it doesn't quite have that resonance, although you could say we've done remarkably well, as in many other countries, in dealing with the consequences of it, like energy security and energy prices. We've we've largely come together to overcome some of those. So identifying what people will coalesce around is a key point in communities. Second point, I think, is networking. Um, communities and businesses and people need to network. And I think if we have or can place more emphasis on volunteering um, through networks, then I think that's can only be a good thing to make communities more resilient. And in, again, using the pandemic, in the UK, we had something like uh, three quarters of a million people volunteered in the early days to help with the pandemic. Very few of them were subsequently contacted. But it showed that there was a community spirit and people were willing to engage with it. Um, and we need to, to really major on that and develop what is existing now. We've got lots of volunteering charities, etc. But we really need to multiply that up into the millions, not a few hundred thousands. We are going to meet a major disaster. And the last thing I think about communities is we need to start with schools. You don't start talking to children, school children, college students about resilience and what it means and what it means for them. Then you're never going to move that through the working agenda. For people at you know CEO level who never experienced it. So I think there's a lot we can do to teach resilience in schools as a to help community and people. It's interesting you just mentioned uh, the schools because uh, I don't know about the UK, but over here uh, in a lot of the school boards around where I live, uh, students in high school do have to do volunteer work for a certain, I don't know what the amount of hours are, but each semester they have to do a, a certain amount of volunteering. Yeah. You know, yeah. And if that continues on, then, hey, that's going to be great. That'll help with some of the things that you just brought forward. No, absolutely. And really echo that. I wish we, uh, and I know other countries are trying to do it, France, for example. Um, but I think there's, besides volunteering to help paint a wall in a, a school or a old people, I think there needs to be an underpinning understanding of what that volunteering is about. Uh, it's not just the wall, it's there to help nation nations in crisis and there needs to be a register of those volunteers and a register of their skills as they go through the work experience so that the nation can call upon them uh, when there is real serious difficulty so it's mm -hmm. it's more than a casual volunteering you know it's very worthwhile and not denying that but i think there needs to be uh, a, a national reserve um, you know, I'm not talking a military reserve, but a national reserve to draw on through volunteering. Yeah, because you never know what the situation could be. And yeah. some of these volunteers could be uh, potential uh, people that cooked or people that yeah. um, uh, built, you know, you mentioned walls, so built walls, you know, uh, to, to help, you know, fix broken buildings or, or building something for humanity, you know, uh, Houses for Humanity, I forgot the, the exact title there of the, the group, yeah. but those kind of things, you know, that'll give you those pool of people to to draw from that could help depending on what the situation is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, we only have about uh, two minutes, uh, two and a half minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts, things that you would like to share? Um, yeah, well, I'd, I'd emphasize a couple of things that I think important what we uh, today. First, when is that resilience is about people. And if you put too much emphasis on technology to save you, um, or infrastructure to save you, um, not that they are not important, but I think if you don't concentrate on probably the most difficult part of resilience, 
And that is getting people to change their view, behavior, attitudes in response to a problem. And I think we will go on struggling. That's the first point. Uh, the second point I, I make about is about Ukraine, really, or use a comparison. You can be resilient as the Ukrainians are wonderfully proving as a nation they are. But you still need the tanks to defend the country. And one of the phrases that has come up in recent UK documents is security through resilience. And I think there's a conflation there. There's a misunderstanding. They are different. Resilience is about being able to pick yourself up and move forward. Security is defending the homeland. And they're not the same. They, are, have, they have a correlation, but they're not the same. And I don't think you can get security through resilience. Uh, which is uh, an argument that's being founded here. The last point I'd make is I think the pandemic uh, has proved that we're still able to learn and apply the lessons of the past, um, but they need to be applied. And it's all very well to have documents to say these are the lessons from the pandemic. But if it goes in a drawer and you don't actually apply them, then they may well not be written in the first place. Mm -hmm. They were just observed. They weren't learned. On that note, we've come to the end of the show. Robert, thank you very much for chatting with us today. I really appreciate all, all your insights that you shared. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. And I'm grateful for the interview. And thank you very much. And I look forward to uh, seeing your book come out this year too. The uh, yeah. uh, Building Resilient Futures. I'll be getting a copy of that. I will let you know when it comes. Great. Maybe we'll get you back and we'll talk about a couple of other sections. Exciting. <laughs> Thank you very much, Robert, and everybody watching and listening. Stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.